Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello. In this week's interview on new books in intellectual history, we talk about sex. Well, actually, we talk about the talk about sex. Since Michel Foucault's work, History of Sexuality, this has been a central concern of cultural and intellectual historians. Foucault linked a number of 19th century phenomena, such as the growth of sexology as a discipline and the pathologization of homosexuality, to the emergence of biopolitical strategies of subject formation and population management. Picking up on Foucault's work, some historians of modern Germany have read the talk about sex and reproduction in the Kaiserreich as a foundational stage in a eugenic logic that would ultimately lead to national socialism and its racial state. In his book, Sex, Freedom, and Power in Imperial Germany, Edward Ross Dickinson challenges this view. He likens sex talk to a barroom brawl that starts at one table and spreads across a crowded room. Sex emerged as a field of contestation involving Christian moralists, sex reformers, and sexologists, each tied to different social and political interests. In this interview, we discuss the different anthropologies that undergirded their respective positions. Christian and some Jewish morality activists argued that sex had to be overcome through the moral spirit, while sex reformers and sexologists understood sex in a monist vein, as a natural drive and the engine of creative production and of human biological and social evolution. I very much enjoyed the following conversation with Edward Ross Dickinson, and hope you do as well. Hello, this is Todd Weir, your host of New Books in Intellectual History. Welcome back to another show. Today, it's my pleasure to be speaking to Edward Ross Dickinson, who has recently published a book, Sex, Freedom, and Power in Imperial Germany, 1880-1914. Ed is a professor of history at the University of California at Davis, and uh, he's a a prolific author of uh, very interesting essays and articles that he's been publishing over the last decade on the subject related to this book. And so this, this book is, I think, a really a culmination of, of over a decade of, of work. And I'll just say that it's a very uh, impressive book. And I particularly like the way in which he has incorporated uh, literally hundreds of voices that he's, he's pulled out of, of uh, texts, both well-known and obscure. And, um, and I think he, he manages to, to, uh, um, overcome a certain problem that I always warn my students about when they write essays. And that is, I say, uh, you know, you have to be careful when you use many, many quotations um, that you don't want to do what Nietzsche warned against um, in writing, which is Nietzsche said that there's always a danger in quotation that you could be uh, producing a piece of work in which the quotations are like uh, pieces of stained glass that are held together by the lead of your own prose. Um, and I think you've really uh, uh, overcome this this uh, potential threat of using many quotations. And these these quotations are really woven together very nicely. And so we have a very, very actually very straightforward, readable 
text and a clear argument, but nonetheless, which is saturated with voice out of this time period. So, so Ed, congratulations on a, on a well-written and, uh, I think, masterful book. Thank you. That's extraordinarily flattering. <laughs> Um, so we usually start these interviews by, by asking a, a question about your, uh, a bit of your biography, what brought you to this topic? Um, you know, what, uh, obviously the, the topic of well, the book, I'll just say focuses, uh, rather primarily on the first of the three terms you bring, right? Sex, freedom, mm-hmm. and power, but sex is really the center of this, of this, um, of this book. Um, mm-hmm. So without being too racy, perhaps you could tell us how you arrived at the topic of sex. Ed. So I wrote a dissertation and first book on child welfare policy in Germany between 1870 and 1960. And that was uh, concerned primarily with the physical welfare of children and social welfare. But there were uh, many of the figures involved in that book were also very interested in the moral welfare of children. And when I got done with that, I started investigating more um, sort of competing conceptions of uh, how to prepare children for a moral life as well as a productive um, and healthy life and got into this subject through that and followed various different avenues and debates related to that question um, and uh, gradually got more and more interested in sex and reproduction and the way in which that was related to people's conceptions of politics and, and morality and so forth. So it really grew directly out of that previous research project. The other thing was that I, I became very interested in the ideological debates and in the sort of radical disjunctions and disconnections between the ways different groups of people looked at, at morality um, and I think that appealed to me because I've lived in a number of different societies and um, was wrestling in my own life with um, the incommensurability of people's conceptions of the world and, and the good life. So I lived in communist East Germany and I lived in sort of kleptocratic capitalist Italy and I lived in um, West Germany and I lived in New Zealand, which was very much a social democracy when I got there, undergoing a neoliberal revolution. And um, I was very impressed by the um, by the ways in which uh, people can see the same social reality in absolutely radically opposed manner. And that comes out, I think, very strongly in this book. You know, I didn't even realize that you had lived in East Germany because I did as well as a student in Rostock. Is that right? Yeah. Fantastic. In where? Where did you in live? Rostock. Oh, you poor man. Oh, it's lovely. It was great. Really? That was I spent a month time. in Rostock in winter and I just, it was very tough. Uh. I liked it, but that's another story. All right. Uh, so let's get to the uh, the sort of historiographical context uh, of this of this work. Um, the uh, I suppose the starting point for most uh, historians of sexuality or of or of sexology uh, would have to be Michel Foucault of, of recent um, you know people have worked on the subject in recent years, and uh, you know if you're familiar with with Foucault's work on the history of sexuality of it's been enormously productive for uh, scholars working in many fields, but really the notion that um, that discourse talking about sexuality and institutions created around the management and the, the investigation of sexuality uh, had a key role in the creation of modern subjectivities. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, and particularly the whole uh, field of gender history, obviously, has been inspired by this mm-hmm. um, paradigm that, that, he, that he created. But I suppose in, in German history, we have really a, a different set of questions that are thrust upon us by 20th century German history itself. And really, it's the question of uh, not just subjectivity of of individuals, but rather the connection between the discourse of of sex and biology and national socialism, right? Mm -hmm. And and the the text there that is really crucial would have to be Detlef Poikert's essay on the genesis of the final solution from the history of science. Now, mm-hmm. I assume we're about the same generation, more or less, but if you were a graduate student in the 1990s studying German history, mm-hmm. uh, this, this text, I think, had an enormous impact, particularly on American students of German history, even more so than German students of German history. I think that's an interesting question of why it is that Poikert, who's a German, is probably more strongly received in the, in the United States than in, uh, than in Germany itself. Right. Um, but I was I was wondering if you could open this up a bit for the readers, uh, you know, perhaps something about Foucault, but, but maybe Poikert. Um, what was his argument about the relationship of biology and national socialism? And um, and then and then going on from there, in what ways does your book uh, revise um, this particular view of the history of biology and sex? Right. Wow. Well, I need to pause for a moment and drag this stuff out of my memory banks. Um, Both Foucault and particularly Poikert were absolutely central to my thinking at the beginning of the project, partly because Poikert wrote an extremely influential and extraordinarily impressive book about child welfare policy. Um, So I really started there. Of course, I read Foucault in graduate school and um, I went to Berkeley in the late 80s and Foucault was um, very influential there specifically in that time um, but really began with with Poikert. The argument that Poikert makes in that essay as I recall it, and you can probably correct me here, <laughs> is that um, in the modern era, partly because of uh, the trend of secularization people came to invest biology and particularly the the collective biological entity of the nation with the quasi-religious importance um, and began to argue that uh, transcendence or life after death takes the real form of the ongoing life of the nation through the generations, right? And that the idea, therefore, of uh, improving the race or the national body came to have almost religious significance. Um, and that meant that, and, and again, correct me if I'm conflating other things with Poikert's argument, but that meant that um, moral standards that had um, militated against treating people as objects or people as a means to an end were eroded by the sense that treating people's physical bodies as a means to the end of transcendence was actually the highest form of morality. Am I confusing things here? Or no, is that, I think, you're, I think okay. you're doing well. 
Okay. Sounds okay. just right to me. I feel like I'm back in my comprehensive exams here. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, Quaker did not argue that the logical outcome of this was national socialism and mass murder, but he did argue that this that was one possible outcome of this way of thinking about the body and this sort of investment of the national body with almost religious significance. Um, so, uh, and then the other thing that, that, um, Poikert argued was that there was a, a kind of, um, um, urgency or, uh, or, uh, compulsive character to this kind of thinking because of course, um, the individual body does die and is imperfect. And, um, uh, the project of achieving sort of biological perfection is therefore always confronted with imperfection, right? That there's a, um, there's an almost obsessional quality to the drive to perfect humanity in a biological sense because our imperfections are constantly undermining that project. Uh, and just the fact of death is of individual death is constantly undermining that project. Um, and I've argued elsewhere in a couple of uh, review essays that uh, while Poikert is careful to point out that this is not, again, the necessary, that National Socialism is not the necessary outcome of this kind of thinking, um, just the salience of the problem of National Socialism in German history and German historiography meant that that's really what he wrote about. And he didn't write about the other possible outcomes of that kind of thinking. Um, and in a review essay I published, I think in 2004 or 2006 or sometime back then, um, I argued that really sort of the democratic welfare state is also a possible outcome of that kind of thinking. That The democratic welfare state is um, a biopolitical project. It's aimed at improving the health of the nation um, but it does so not through dictatorial and murderous policies, but through uh, policies of assistance that are founded on the conception of individual rights. Right? Uh, we achieve national health and efficiency and economic power and so forth by assuring that people have an actionable right to health care, to education, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so... I then, um, you know, obviously with this project, I had to um, engage with Foucault. And I found kind of a little bit the same pattern there, that Foucault um, was ultimately and almost in an unspoken fashion very much concerned with fascism and specifically with National Socialism. Uh, in that book, National Socialism appears at the end of a long development that Foucault traces back to the mid-18th century, um, and not necessarily, again, not necessarily as a culmination or, or uh, um, um, the only possible outcome of that development, but as a, um, a possible one, a likely one. And um, I was struck by... Um, the tendency to regard any form of talk about sexuality as a prologue to 
coercive intervention to regulate sexuality. Um, and um, what I found when I went to the sources was a much more contested, much more diverse, uh, much more open debate than that model suggests. So the book um, tries to reconstruct what Foucault in earlier essays referred to as the multiple teleologies and the multiple connections and the multiple um, lines of possibility that arise out of any discourse or any way of understanding the world. Um, and I really was actually ultimately much more influenced by the archaeology of knowledge and by some essays um, from the early 1970s of Foucault's than by the history of sexuality. Um, in those earlier essays, Foucault is much less structuralist in his approach to discourse and the way discourse operates in societies, in social contexts. Um, so um, I, 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 it's very difficult to say whether I'm a Foucauldian, but if I'm a Foucauldian, I'm a Foucauldian a la the early Foucault of the archaeology of knowledge and not of the history of sexuality. Very good. The, uh, you know, I, I guess the, the, the point being with the, with the Poikot um, that, I, that I took away from it had to do with <laughs> the, the notion that there was a, a logic inherent in a discourse that itself would propel dynamics and propel right. certain teleological uh, outcomes. Yes. Um, and that it seemed that you're, you were trying to replace these teleological notions of discourse with this, as you said, a contested terrain. And you right. use also uh, quite often the term field. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm, of course, a big fan of, of Bourdieu, Pierre Bourdieu and his, mm -hmm. you know, his notions of, of social fields in which uh, it's important to consider the relations between the, the various actors within the field um, as well as sort of the more internal, uh, you know, intrinsic intentions of the actors. Uh, so, so your book really sketches out a, a kind of field. You try to open up this field and, and you identify actually uh, quite clearly, I think, uh, you know, three major actors in the field and then, and then sort of even within those three camps, if we want to call them camps, or maybe two camps, three camps, um, um, different uh, f different fissures within those. Absolutely. So, do you want to do you want to describe a bit? And this is getting now into the the meat of the book. Um, you know, sex emerges as a a topic of discourse, of reform effort, of contention. Uh, you know, in your book, eighteen eighty is when you pick it up. Um, you know how. how Describe this field for us. Maybe give us some of the actors and, uh, and mm -hmm. some of the key developments. Mm -hmm. You know, um, Bourdieu is very helpful in this respect, I think. And the other theorist that I found very useful was Nicholas Luhmann in the theory of complex systems. And what you've just described is absolutely what I try to do in this book, which is not to analyze the inherent logic in any given discourse or any given view of the world, but rather to analyze the dynamic that that uh, emerges from the interactions between competing conceptions of sexuality, right? And that's really what the book does, um, is to 
describe the emergence and uh, articulation of this field of uh, competing conceptions of sexuality and the dynamic that the interactions between them over time develops. So um, you start in the 1880s with very small groups of activists from various camps, socialists, conservative Christians, um, and so forth. Uh, very small groups of activists, many of them interested in uh, quite specific issues, whether it be the regulation of prostitution or marriage law or uh, the legal position of illegitimate children or censorship or what have you. Um, those groups number in the high hundreds to low thousands. They begin to pursue particular legislative projects, uh, regulatory projects. They then start to bump up against each other. Um, and out of that bumping up against each other, that creates the dynamic that generates an expanding field of organizations and discourse and so forth. So really you start with uh, liberal Christian women inspired by uh, Josephine Butler's campaign in Britain against the regulation of prostitution. And you begin to see um, uh, actually chapters, local German chapters of Josephine Butler's international organization in Germany. Um, that then sparks a response from conservative Christian men, conservative, I should say, Protestant men, who are uh, very concerned that liberal Protestant women will seize control of that issue. Um, they are also, uh, of course, extremely concerned by social democratic uh, thinking about sexuality and specifically by um, August Babel's Woman Under Socialism, which I think is published in 1878, early 1880s. I can't remember exactly. Um, so Christian men, Protestant men respond to, to, to those perceived threats um, and um, you sort of go from there. They rub up against uh, liberal Protestants who organize their own interconfessional or liberal Protestant organizations. Um, radical women come into the picture in the 18, mid to late 1890s. Uh, the socialist women's trade unions become more involved in the same period, 18, mid 1890s, late 1890s. By the, um, by the late 1890s, early 1900s, you begin to see uh, more conservative Christian and Jewish women getting involved, founding their own organizations. And the, often the way this works is that um, these small groups of activists are embedded in much larger potential constituencies, right? And as they begin to compete with each other to shape public policy or public opinion, they begin to go back to those constituencies to recruit more members. So the probably most striking example is that in 1899, conservative Protestant men actually uh, reach out to conservative Protestant women to persuade them to form their own organizations to complement the men's Protestant men's Christian um, morality movement, right? So they actually ge uh, generate a women's counterpart to their men's organizations. Um, the interesting thing is that as more people are drawn in from these potential constituencies, you actually start to see a growing diversity of opinion 
within these um, within these sort of now complexes of organizations. Because as you draw in more people, obviously you draw in more people with different perspectives and so forth. And again, the case of the Protestant men's um, and women's morality organizations is the most striking because the Protestant men's organizations were in favor of uh, abolishing the regulation of prostitution and criminalizing all prostitution. But it turned out that their female counterparts in the new women's Protestant morality associations um, were actually uh, quite drawn to the position of radical women, which was that women should have the right to do whatever they want with their bodies and that the um, the solution to the problem of regulated prostitution was actually to decriminalize all prostitution. <laughs> and so they actually um, uh, gained increasing influence within the men's Protestant morality associations. And by 1912, the men's Protestant morality associations had come around to that position, that all prostitution should not be criminalized, but rather decriminalized. And you should abolish regulation that way. Um, and this created huge ructions within the broader Protestant milieu, the uh, Protestant uh, church organizations and the Protestant charity organizations, because there you had men who were not um, influenced by women's organizations uh, and who remained committed to the idea that prostitution is sinful and it should be against the law. Um, and you see that happening frequently, the homosexual rights movement splinters, uh, the sex reform movement splinters. Uh, there are very serious tensions within um, Catholic morality associations between men and women. Uh, those are actually formed a little bit later after the turn of the century, but the same tension eventually develops between men's and women's organizations in that milieu as well. So the what the book lays out is um, a dynamic of continuous escalation and fragmentation. That is to say, there are more and more organizations debating more and more issues in more and more uh, clear and vehement terms, right? Um, ultimately, out of that, out of that dynamic, there develops a, a um, which is it, centrifugal or centripetal? Centripetal tendency, because in order to get leverage on public policy, these organizations start to f- um, form alliances, and, and connections and even um, interlocking directorates. And you start to see these three complexes of organizations and three views of the problem of sexuality emerging much more clearly by 1910, 1914 um, than they had at the beginning. Um, you, you've discussed a bit the, the Christian uh, perspective on right. sexuality, sexual reform. Um, the other two camps that you've just started to introduce but that I haven't really named yet – are, mm-hmm. the, are the sex reformers right. and the sexologists. Right, yeah. Um, and you make a distinction when looking at the Christian uh, and, and the confessional sex reform, or the, let's say the morality organizations, and these, these latter groups. Right. Um, you, you sort of divide them, uh, and you bring up the term anthropology to, to divide mm-hmm. them. Okay? Mm-hmm. And you talk about a Christian anthropology and a monist anthropology. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so could you just describe what you mean by anthropology? Because that might not be apparent to all listeners. What you right. mean there, and then, and then, can you can you summarize uh, what it is that makes these two anthropologies different? Right. So, this returns us, in a sense, to Foucault, because um, all of these groups share the conviction that sexuality is something. Um, extremely important, a determining factor in um, uh, 
human subjectivity and in, in our sense of selfhood, right? Deeply rooted determining factor in our sense of selfhood. They agree on that. Um, they disagree as to the nature of that sexuality and um, sort of in sim- fairly simplistic terms, the Christian conception is that sexuality is an essentially animalistic force. It's an amoral, antisocial, egoistic uh, appetite, which has to be under the control of man's spiritual nature and moral values, right? The social democratic argument, which is central to sex reform, is that sexuality is uh, not only a creative force deeply rooted in man's nature, but also a fundamentally social force, that the bonds that hold society together are at their foundation essentially erotic, right? So sexuality for social democrats and sex reformers really is um, the core of the glue that holds societies together and it's the source of the energy that makes people creative, whether it be in the arts or in politics or in the sciences or what have you. Um, for some sexologists, uh, sexuality is instead a fundamentally aggressive instinct. Um, and the focus there is uh, very clearly on men's sexual aggression as the creative force that drives political and biological development and cultural development, right? Um, it's men's desire to essentially procreate with as many women as possible that drives them to create um, uh, arts and sciences and political uh, um, institutions and so on and so forth. Uh, and whereas sex reform is very much focused on um, women's sexual subjectivity and the idea that women drive sexual selection, uh, some sexologists are very much focused on men's sexual aggression and, in fact, on death as the motor of evolution, not love. Right? For sex reform, it's women's capacity for love that really creates society and drives evolution forward. Uh, for some of the sexologists, it's re- they're really obsessed with war and specifically with racial war as the motor of evolution. Now, I say some sexologists because sexology is very diverse, very divided. And by 1913, you actually see two sexological associations emerge in Germany, one of which is actually very close to social democracy and sex reform. And the other is um, much more conservative some of the people in it are uh, national liberals, that is, more conservative liberals. Some are um, uh, more connected to the Progressive People's Party, that is, sort of left liberalism. But some are very attracted to radical right-wing politics, the idea of an authoritarian or even totalitarian state. Some of them are radical anti-Semites and, and, and so forth. The, um, you know, you, you bring up, uh, and this is something that I think that we, uh, uh, interest we both share, but you, you, you know, you mentioned monism quite a, quite yep. a bit, yep. uh, and listeners who, who might've listened to some of my other interviews will notice that whenever that term appears, I pick up on it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. and, um, you, you know, in your chapter, I mean, the one that of course interested me quite a bit was the one on, um, the religion of sex 
right. uh, Ellen Kay, this, this Swedish mm-hmm. reformer. And it, effectively, there's an argument there about um, a monist religion in which um, sex plays a key role in, um, in mediating between body and spirit. Yeah. And, and in, in effect, uh, fulfilling the, uh, kind of a monist anthropology. Uh, could you go into that in a bit more detail? Yeah, so I um, actually describe both sexology and sex reform as fundamentally monist. In the case of um, particularly of sex reform, but to some extent sex- sexology as well, there are very close connections, organizational connections and uh, personal connections between the monist and bond, the Monist um, League and the sex reform organizations. Um, and sex reformers describe themselves as monists and are, um, uh, you know, describe themselves as disciples of Ernst Heckel, the um, intellectual father and honorary chairman of the Monist Society. And the argument there is simply that there is not a realm of spirit uh, that is separate from the body and that. Uh, Christianity has made a fundamental error in assuming that the body has to remain under the Herrschaft, the dominion of man's spiritual nature, if we are not to um, degenerate into an animalistic, chaotic state. Um, And this is why monists uh, argue that sexuality is actually a social and productive and creative force rather than an animalistic, immoral, antisocial, destructive force, right? Sexologists make the same argument. Um, uh, I'm sorry. uh, Some sexologists make the same argument and are very closely associated with with, um, the sex reform movement. Other sexologists are drawn to the right-wing radical element within the monist movement as well which is never a dominant element, which was there from the beginning. Heckel himself, for example, was um, kind of a vulgar racist in some texts, at least. And um, so they, too, can regard monism as kind of their um, the overarching intellectual home that they inhabit. Um, and the difference, of course, is that uh, ultimately um, Protestant, Catholic, and Jewish uh, religious um, organizations that are interested in matters of morality can actually come to a fundamental agreement um, regarding the nature of sexuality and the political implications of that. Um, On the other side, between the the sexologists, particularly right-wing sexologists and the sex reform movement, there really is not an agreement. And in fact, there's intense hostility um, because some of the right-wing sexologists are – very clearly social Darwinists and regard the um, uh, much more, uh, I would say, erotic conception of sexuality that prevails in the sex reform movement as um, fundamentally mistaken and wrong. Uh, And particularly the idea of a pacific world is anathema to these people who argue that you know, life is struggle and the weak have to be eliminated and there's has to ultimately be um, a, a racial Armageddon in which the superior European peoples will um, will conquer the inferior peoples of the world. 
Yeah, you make an interesting distinction um, regarding the, the sexologists, or at least the more conservative uh, sexologists and the sex reformers, uh, around issues of eugenics. Um, mm-hmm. You know, where you you, um, you you bring up the the point that the sex reformers were often more interested, in, more committed to eugenics and eugenic reform than the sexologists. Yeah, which, you know, would strike one as as a sort of uh, seemingly wrong because we yeah. we might assume that. We, you know that these uh, reactionary sexologists could link directly into national socialism, and we could see a kind of a trajectory of, of eugenic thought along right. those lines, which which is probably there. But uh, you know, your point there is, I think, about the um, the, the productivity of sex, mm-hmm. um, and that uh, you know, for the sex for the sex reformers, rather. Um, you know, erotic love, as you were saying, is creative, is is, is positive, uh, um, and for the for many of these more conservative sexologists, as you're suggesting, the emphasis might be on not liberating women's eroticism and increasing their control over their bodies, but rather making sure that there's a maximum production of offspring for the coming struggle of the races. Right. Um, so, I, I thought that was quite an interesting. Um, distinction. Do you want to say anything else about the, um, you know, the, the, why it was that these radical women were interested in eugenics? It, 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 you know, f- for somebody who's not familiar with German history and the history of feminism, that would seem strange that the earliest, most radical German feminists and the most radical homosexual rights reformers were monists and were committed to eugenics and very interested in race. How does that all come right. together? So the the it, it, distinction that I found and that I I do find kind of counterintuitive is that um, the sex reformers who are very drawn to various forms of socialism, whether it be social democracy or more anarchistic varieties of socialism further to the left, um, they're very interested in eugenics and not so interested in race. You do find sort of um, what we would see as racist comments uh, or racist ideas scattered through their text, but really not in any great profusion. And they're primarily interested in eugenics, and they're extremely interested in eugenics. And they they do um, uh, you know advocate the creation of what they call a eugenic religion, uh, in which the transcendence is not a spiritual aim, but a physical aim. That is, we will create people who are superior to what we are now and are, are superhuman in that sense, uh, both biologically and also in their social capacities. Um, radical right-wing sexologists, like the sexologists in general, including sort of more conservative liberals and left liberals, are much less interested in eugenics, often quite skeptical of eugenics, but they're much more interested in race. Um, and, you know, thinking backward from National Socialism, we would think that the same people who are interested in eugenics should be interested in racism. Um, but before 1914, that's not actually the case. Uh, and I found that fascinating. And, and um, you know, I'm working on a second volume, which will treat the 1920s, and I'll sort that out um, in, the, in the course of writing that. But um, I think the... the um, the sex reformers are interested in eugenics um, in part out of the heritage of their engagement with Nietzsche, who was very interested in um, the idea of selective breeding and of creating superior people, but in part also 
and increasingly because they were criticized for their Nietzschean individualism. Uh, and conservative Christians and um, and uh, of all stripes and also conservative Jewish figures argued that what they were arguing for was essentially sexual anarchy and that their so-called ethic, well, they called it the new ethic as opposed to the Christian ethic, that this new ethic was not ethical at all, but was rather just an apology for an irresponsible pursuit of individual sexual pleasure. The appeal to eugenics was a way to argue that, no, we actually do have um, a sense of responsibility, right? And we do not believe in free love, but rather in responsible individual love. But what we are responsible for is the health and well-being of our offspring in a biological sense, right? So in a sense, um, the growing engagement of sex reformers was in part a defensive response to criticisms of their more sort of Nietzschean ecstatic um, uh, understanding of the place of sexual love in, in the individual's life. Um, so there's a very complex evolution that happens there. Um, yeah, you don't you don't go into it very much, but I'm, I'm curious because I'm interested also in the you know in the 1960s and and really what came after. But uh, you know, it strikes me that the the question of sexual experience, the actual um, question of pleasure, of ex, of experience of sexuality, of um, you know relations of power within this within you know sexual encounters, um, you don't really emphasize those discussions very much. Mm -hmm. um, and my question, I guess, because, you know, if you think about what's happened since the 1960s and onwards, the, the, liber the liberatory aspects of sex that have been, you know, in theoretical discussions, but also just in popular culture, have much more to do, I think, with the experience of sex rather than its relationship to procreation. Right. Whereas in, the, in this period, it seems that they're always talking at the same time about procreation. Uh, that they never dis totally distinguish between um, experiences of sexuality and and social relations that are connected to sex, and in particular questions of motherhood, right? Uh, and 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 parent well, parenting, but you know, obviously the the key group that you're looking at in terms of the sex reformers are the are the Bund uh, für Mutterschutz, uh, the Deutsche Bund für Mutterschutz, which is you know the protection of mothers. Yeah. Uh, so. I, I just want to throw that open. Any any thoughts just about a comparison here, uh, the nineteen sixties and thereafter versus the the versus nineteen oh five? Right. So I think there's a very complicated negotiation that's going on in this in the period that I examine. There's obviously um, a very very intense taboo against non procreative sex, against sex as an individual experience of pleasure that doesn't serve any social purpose. Uh, and the debates about the moral status of contraception are very intense and very highly charged. And particularly for women, there's a much broader social acceptance of men pursuing sexual experience as part of the process of becoming a man, of growing up. Uh, and that's far less accepted for women However, within the sex reform movement, you do hear people arguing first that um, sex without procreation serves an important social function as the foundation 
part of the foundation of love, right, which establishes stable um, social relationships between men and women and therefore is the foundation for the healthy environment in which children grow up. Um, and also for the tolerance of uh, individual sexual preferences. So you see people arguing that, well, society, the state, really doesn't have anything to say to someone who is by nature polygamous or who by nature uh, is drawn to the idea of serial monogamy or who by nature um, wants to have children but is not terribly interested in being married. So you do hear people making that argument that um, sexual pleasure is the individual's business and not the business of other people who really can't know what the authentic sexual nature of another person is. You do hear that. Secondly, you do also hear voices within sex reform and even within sex sexology arguing that young women have just as much right and just as much need to explore sexuality through sexual experiences and sexual encounters as young men do. Now, this, even within the sex, the Bund für Mutterschutz, right, the major sex reform organization, is a very contentious statement. And, uh, you know, you hear in the, in the protocols of these discussions, uh, you hear, you know, loud protests followed so-and-so's remark that young women have the right to sexual experience just as much as young men. I think there's a continuous development uh, in the direction of accepting uh, sexual experimentation, sexual experience as having a useful social function between this period and the 1960s. Right? And I think if you look back at the 1950s, early 60s, you will see people also arguing um, in terms more familiar from this period. That is, Sexual experiment experimentation is valuable because it helps people to figure out what they like and what they want and therefore form stable marital relationships, which will be a healthy environment for children to grow up in. It's really in the later periods, um, late 60s into the 70s, 80s, that you see people arguing um, much more commonly that sexual experimentation is valuable because it helps people to explore their own subjectivity without the goal of a stable social relationship, i.e. procreative relationship, um, being the ultimate aim. And again, you know, people made that argument in 1900 as well. It was just a much more highly charged uh, kind of statement in that period. How do you, another sort of related question, jumping uh, jumping across the century in a way, um, you know, since the 1980s, perhaps at the latest, uh, many people in, in the West see sexuality as a, as, as a well, let's say gender as a as a construction, um, mm -hmm. as a cultural construction with a, with a specific historicity, and, mm -hmm. and that um, conviction or or that theory emerged in part also in, in a response to sociobiology, right? That there right. is you know, the notion that uh, biology fixes um, gender and it fixes sexual identity was rejected uh, right. in the, in the, at that period in the early 80s by, by a particularly feminist. 
And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it may be that that's now changing uh, in an age that we live in today with uh, evolutionary psychology and, uh, right. and so on. Um, but nonetheless, uh, uh, just to, to compare now, going back again to, to the, uh, that period, 1905 or say, to what degree did the sex reformers or sexologists uh, view gender as constructed? Um, and to what degree did they think that it was biologically fixed? Right. The idea that gender was biologically fixed is virtually universal um, in this period. I, I can't think of people actually uh, who argue in any coherent way that there is not an essential femininity and an essential masculinity. What you do see is people arguing that um, sexuality is not necessarily fixed. That is to say, um, well, this opens a whole can of worms because you do see in this period um, precisely the argument that Foucault points out, which is that sexuality is an essential element and a determining element in subjectivity. And that sexuality is differentiated. That is to say, there are people who are by nature monogamous, people who are by nature polygamous, there are people who are by nature heterosexual, people who are by nature homosexual. If they're attracted to both sexes, then they're by nature bisexual. If they like pain, they're by nature sadistic. If they like inflicting pain, sorry, you understand what I'm saying, right? Yeah. That, that, that sadism or masochism or sadomasochism are essential and irreducible elements in a person's sexuality. There are people who um, argue that this is really not the case and that sexuality is much more protean. Um, and when you look at what information we have about people's sexual practices, that is not what they thought about sex what intellectuals and kind of the social elite thought about sex, but what people actually did in practice, you see uh, a much more indeterminate understanding of sexuality. There's many people get pleasure from many different kinds of sex acts. Um, early survey research, for example, discovers that the number of people who consider themselves bisexual is much bigger than anyone thought that the number of people who have what we would call homosexual experiences in their youth is far bigger than anyone thought possible on the basis of the assumption that sexuality is fixed and differentiated. Um, and uh, that people just either experimented because they were interested or engaged in various different forms of sexual um, activity as opportunity and um, and circumstances dictated. So you do see uh, a kind of a disconnect between the theory of sexuality as most people understood it and as Foucault reconstructed it and actual sexual practice. Um, there was much greater certainty about gender than there was about sexuality. The assumption that there is an essential femininity and an essential masculinity is almost universal. There, um, 
were voices, particularly in the women's movement, who questioned that. In fact, um, could there's you actually a one- say something? Sorry, just yeah. about this because it's such an interesting figure. Uh, well, you haven't you, you haven't actually mentioned individuals much yet, but we have mm-hmm. Helena Stucker and Magnus Hirschfeld, who I think mm-hmm. uh, are both in the Monist League. They're 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 really the leaders of you know the sex reform on the one hand yes. and the homosexual rights movement on the other. Yes, um, you know they do have a have a slightly different view, don't they, on the notion of um, of gender. Um, do you want to say something about that? Yeah, well, what's most apparent in their, uh, in their publications is this notion that um, there is an unlimited – there are an unlimited number of sexual variations and that uh, sexuality is differentiated but along a continuous spectrum – Right. And Hirschfeld, for example, at one point calculates that there are 43,076,421 different discrete forms of sexual desire. Right. And he remarks at one point, I think, um, there are as many forms as love as there are individuals. Um, so that's a, that's quite a different understanding of sexuality than an understanding that tries to catalog the discrete specific forms of sexuality. Right sadomasochistic or sadist or heterosexual or homosexual or et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they also argue that uh, masculinity and femininity are combined in every individual in varying uh, quantities, right? So that you can never say that one individual is either solely masculine or solely feminine, they may be predominantly masculine, but also partly feminine. The two genders, so to speak, may be in balance or principles may be in balance in an individual, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's a fundamentally different conception of gender than a conception that says there's masculinity and there's femininity and any individual belongs either to the one or the other category, right? Um, but nevertheless, there is the, there is the, I think they're still negotiating the concept that these two things are discrete and fundamentally essentially different, right? It's just that they're present in varying degree in every individual. I don't know. You may have a different understanding of, of how they're thinking of it. No, I think that that's, I think that's right. I mean, the interesting thing with, uh, with Hirschfeld is he talks about a monism of the sexes Mm -hmm. that in a sense, every, every individual represents a different amalgamation of these two principles. So instead of it being body and spirit, it's male and female. Uh, he, yeah. he kind of appropriates this, this kind of uh, thought pattern um, for his yeah. own purposes. Uh, but, I, but I think that is, again, quite interesting. It's just, again, for listeners who don't are familiar with this history, um, the notion that the homosexual rights movement and the radical feminist movement were deeply indebted to biology, mm-hmm. uh, evolutionary biology, it may be surprising to many listeners. Um, but, you know, if you do work in this period, it's it's very obviously the case. Yeah, uh, and it's such an extraordinary contrast to the sociobiology of the 80s and 90s, right? Which argues that, um, uh, you know, I see that as an anti-feminist argument, that women are women and men are men, and, and they have to perform different roles for evolutionary reasons. Um, you know, one other thing I wanted to mention is uh, there is this fascinating character who appears in the book, Johanna um, Elboskirchen, who's one of the few openly homosexual women 
in Germany and in the sex reform movement at the at the period. She's someone who actually does. I think it's she who says at one point that um, trying to force people to decide whether they're going to live out. Uh, their social lives, either as masculine or feminist, fem, feminine, is essentially terroristic, right? That this is a, an assault on the fundamental principle of uh, individual autonomy. Uh, so there certainly is that kind of argument, um, um, which absolutely rejects the idea that we have to be either the one or the other. Well, that that is seems so unusual for the time period because it is, uh, you know, as as again as a contrast perhaps to the to the late twentieth century. Um, at this period, it seems that you, if you're going to talk about sex, you have to root it in a foundational biological, well, maybe not biological, but you have to relate it into a foundational discourse in which everyone is allocated a position in a moral system, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. no one is to escape that. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, they're so deeply committed. Each each camp is so deeply committed to its. Uh, particular program uh, that the idea right. of, of uh, a full sexual liberation is, is anathema to all of them effectively. Yeah. Would destroy yeah. all of their systems. Yeah. Um, this actually segues then maybe to my last, uh, one of my last questions. The, uh, in your title, Sex, Freedom, and Power, okay, power I think we've, we've hit on, but freedom, mm-hmm. we haven't really talked about that. Uh, how do these, each of these three camps define freedom? Mm-hmm. relates to sexuality. Mm-hmm. So two things. One is the way that they um, define f- the freedom uh, of the individual, and the other is the way that they define freedom as a political, in, in, in a constitutional sense, right? And the two are obviously closely related. Uh, the conservative religious morality campaigners, whether Catholic or Protestant or Jewish, uh, argue that people are always in danger of falling uh, under the power of sexuality and losing their ability to make autonomous decisions on the basis of human values. Right? So sexuality is not only an antisocial force, an egoistic force, but it's also a danger to the individual's spiritual freedom and their ability to make decisions uh, that construct a meaningful and productive and satisfying social life for them themselves, right? They therefore argue that the authoritative institutions of their society, whether the church authorities or the political authorities or social authorities, including class privilege and so forth, privileged, privileged social groups, that they are there in order to preserve our moral freedom, the moral freedom of the individual, by assuring that people have to behave according to moral or ethical standards. Right? That defends the internal freedom of the individual from their own animalistic sexuality, as well as defending society, and particularly the weak in society, from the aggressive sexual drives of other individuals. Right? So the function of authority in society is to preserve freedom. There can't be freedom without authority. All there would be is anarchy in which the strong would impose their will on the weak. Right? And ultimately, they argue that the outcome of that would be dictatorship because people would flee to the protection of the strongest um, um, 
against the um, against the danger of anarchy. Uh, the sex reformers argue instead that, um, again, sexuality is a creative social force and th- that political freedom has to be rooted in, founded on the uh, moral autonomy of the individual, including their sexual auto- autonomy and sexual matters, right? And a society and a state that can tell people how they are allowed to behave in their intimate private lives cannot be a politically democratic society, right? So sexual rights correspond to, necessarily correspond to, and underpin political rights. They also argue, obviously, that um, uh, sexual freedom serves an evolutionary purpose. We are attracted to sexual partners because it is the will of nature that we procreate with those sexual partners in order to produce more balanced or better offspring, right? So sexuality is a creative energy that must be allowed to flow freely through society if we are to continue to evolve biologically and also in our social capacities, culturally, right? For some of these radical right-wing sexologists, um, Sexual freedom really means the freedom of men to pursue sexual relationships with as many women as possible. And again, the purpose there is to um, drive evolutionary advance through the ability of better, stronger, more socially successful men to attract or to conquer more women, procreate with them, and therefore produce um, uh, superior offspring. And you know, we often think of the radical right as socially conservative. They really weren't. They opposed social privilege uh, because they wanted a meritocracy of biology. They want uh, inferior members of the upper class, of the aristocracy or the haute bourgeoisie or whatever, to fail and not to procreate. And they want superior members of the it's very hard for them to imagine members of the proletariat being biologically superior, but in principle, yes, you would want those people also to have lots of children by lots of women. Um, and they also absolutely reject uh, Christianity. Uh, among other things, many of them reject the idea of monogamy, not all, but many of them reject the idea of mo- monogamy and argue that an, the natural state is a state of polygamy in which, again, superior men uh, procreate with uh, more women. Uh, so for them, uh, sexual freedom is really the freedom of men to pursue their sexual drives. Yeah, um, I the, uh, the this this uh, the attention that you give really to the struggle between male and female activists mm-hmm. in all of these camps is, mm-hmm. is, yeah. is quite fascinating, and I found that very useful to actually see that there was this uh, you know struggle based on just simply on different interests. Um, uh, that, it's, that's it's, propped up in, in, in all of the camps. Yeah, the book closes with a brief discussion of that. It certainly is one of the most striking things about the period. It's just this uh, astonishing hostility, pervasive hostility between men and women all across the ideological spectrum. It's um, a, a bit demoralizing, really. <laughs> <laughs> I had, a, I had a, a sort of final point, and maybe I'll provoke you just a little bit. We'll see. Yep. We'll see if you get provoked. Um, 
you know, at the, at the outset, in your, in your introduction, you say that you're arguing against these teleological arguments right. that are in some discussions about, uh, you know, the role of biology in, in modern history and in the, eventually in the, in the development the of national, in national socialism. I mean, yeah. there's a, you know, I actually heard your name very favorably mentioned recently by Mark Roseman at a, at a, at a conference where he was talking about a book that I think he's putting together on a, um, maybe you're involved in this on challenging the notion that, that, uh, the Nazi state was a racial state. Uh, so sort of, oh, this, right. uh, I was at that conference. Yeah. I'm not involved in the, in the volume, but I was at that conference. Okay. But the, this notion that, uh, you know, again, an effort to argue against us, a unilinear or, or, a, a single explanation of a, of a dynamic within a system. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so this is the sort of point you're making at the beginning. Um, and then with your notion of the field, uh, you'd, in the end, I think, describe it as if one imagines a, a, a ballroom or, or a bar room, rather, right. where a, a brawl breaks out at one table and then sort of spreads and spreads across the room. Right. And, uh, and I thought that was a very telling uh, uh, motif. But I'm wondering if there's not a teleology in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I th- it seems that your argument in, in the sort of, you know, the big narrative of the book, is that we're, we're looking at a field of actors who, in a sense, you know, exist in, in this larger society of Germany in the pre-1914 period. And, and in a sense, this field is becoming saturated. Mm-hmm. So more and more actors, right? The, the brawl is spreading. Yep. And, the, and the agonistic quality is increasing. Yes. And there's a dynamic there of, of uh, radicalization and, and conflict yes. that is describing the system. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm wondering to what degree you're really relying on it, on it, you're borrowing another argument, but not really stating it really clearly, which is an argument about imperialism mm-hmm. in this period. And, you know, m- many people, and I suppose even Christopher Clark, not that I've read his book, but anyway, his title, the sleepwalkers, you know, how, right. how the European States came into the first world war as a kind of, you know, almost an, uh, you know, a, a system function of, yes. of, 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 imperial, of imperialism, the period of imperialism where we see a, a global saturation of, of by imperial states of, of all the territory of the world, or most of it, um, yes. increasing uh, manufacturing capacity, increasing armaments, and so on. There's these multiple levels of, of saturation. And many yes. have made that same argument about German society and yes. said that, um, you know, I think probably Vela, right, social imperialism, that there's a type of internal imperialism going on within Germany that, that mirrors the, the global imperialism and that um, effectively uh, the great relief that people felt in 1914 in August had to do with the resolution of these various um, imperial saturations and, and antagonisms. Yes. Um, and that, you know, in a sense, World War I solved that problem. Of course, it didn't really solve it, but it, right. it, it's an endpoint of all those things. And, uh, and I'm just wondering to what degree, you know, instead of saying 1914 is a, is a disruption, which I mm-hmm. think you say at some point it kind of shatters this, this whole system. Right. Uh, whether or not you're maybe connecting your narrative into that narrative that 1914 is, in fact, the end result of this. Right. Development and is that, is that a provocation or not? Would you agree with that or or? Uh, I, I think it's think? a great observation and 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 a very fruitful observation. Um, I guess 
I'd have multiple responses. I'll try to run through three of them quickly. One is that um, the outbreak of war in 1914 is, I don't think, in any direct way a product of the debate about sexuality. Um, secondly, uh, however, the subject of imperialism and empire of course, is central to the debate about sexuality in various ways. Uh, conservative Christians are very skeptical and critical of imperial expansion, including by Germany. Uh, the sex reformers, uh, most of them are also extremely skeptical of imperialism uh, and of war. Uh, many of the sexologists, particularly on the, on the radical right, um, are much more sympathetic to the idea. Um, but it, you know, I think this whole discussion of sexuality and power probably plays into the cultural milieu out of which the acceptance of uh, war grows. So it's not a causative element, but it's um, um, a, a um, part of that broader uh, cultural pattern that leads to war. Um, the third thing is that what I find most valuable about Niklas Luhmann and the theory of complex systems is that not only do they allow us to describe a dynamic that is determined by the interactions between elements in a system rather than by the nature of those elements, but they also allow us to understand a system as labile, as unstable, Right, Because we don't assume that outcomes are determined by the hegemonic or dominant influence of one element interacting in that system, I think we're better able to understand that a system can flip state. I'm using the jargon of the theory of complex systems here. But in other words, the dynamic that I'm describing establishes multiple potentials and relatively – uh, minor internal changes can radically shift outcomes, politically in particular, but also external forces influencing the system can radically alter um, the balance of those forces within that, of those elements within that system. And this is, a, I think, a way that we can begin to get to grips with the fact that modern Germany was within the space of half a century a conservative authoritarian constitutional monarchy and then a democratic federal republic and then a totalitarian dictatorship and then a relatively liberal uh, um, federal republic again, right? Now, of course, the influence of the wars is a partially external intervention that determines those outcomes, right? But each of those political systems is built on potentials that actually are there in German society. You can't impose those systems from outside uh, without having some foundation to build on within German society. And the, the, the way in which I'm trying to conceive of this as a field of contention rather than as a coherent discourse that has a, uh, an inevitable logic, 
I think helps us to get to grips with that instability, that liability of the system. And again, uh, you know, uh, I think neither Foucault and certainly not Poikert argued that there was only one outcome that could arise out of the internal logic of this discourse. But they actually didn't analyze multiple outcomes. They only analyzed the fascist outcome. And I'm trying to develop a way of understanding this debate uh, that allows us to understand how this field of contention could contribute to the creation of radically different political regimes. Very good. I hope that makes sense. Tell me if that makes sense. It makes sense to me. It does make sense to me. Um, Well, listen, I've I've taken enough of your time. Um, You know, you've mentioned that you're going to write a sequel to this. Yes. uh, Looking at the Weimar Republic. Uh, And um, are you going to continue after 33 or are you going to stop at 33? I think probably I have to stop. Um, I mean, I have written a little bit about the policing of sexuality in the Federal Republic. Uh, but I don't want to spend my entire career writing about the history of sexuality and debates about the history of sexuality in Germany alone. The, the most recent book that I'm working on is, um, is about modern dance in Europe as a whole. It's related, but, um, but not confined to Germany and not confined to sexuality. I've finished a manuscript in world history. Um, I've been working on this for probably 15 years. It's going to be time to move on when I'm done with the second volume. <laughs> Very good. Okay. Well, that's a great final note. Um, I've been speaking to Edward Ross Dickinson about his uh, wonderful new book from Cambridge University Press, Sex, Freedom, and Power in Imperial Germany, 1880 to 1914. And Ed, I just want to thank you for being on the show. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you very much. And uh, when you finish your book on, on the, the history of dance, uh, perhaps we can have another uh, chance uh, to that. That would be marvelous. I look forward to that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.